0: Amen. Well, we are going to be here in the final verses of Philippians this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word in print or digital form, I'd invite you to join me there today. I joked with you about our upcoming series, uh, talking about doctrine and theology. Uh, There's a bad reputation that uh, we often have of thinking of theology as irrelevant and Nothing could be further from the truth, Uh, just the doctrine of creation. Believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Just the doctrine of creation has so many implications for us, right, in terms of our understanding of marriage, in terms of understanding of gender, of sexuality, of what it means to be human, right, of work. What is the role of work in the life of a, of a person? How should we view our work? So uh, that's just one little doctrine, but it explodes into a million different applications and implications. So um, I think that doctrine ought to not only inform our practical lives, but it also ought to make us sing. Uh, we ought to um, have a theology that sings, uh, one of the great doctrinal resources is uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. There's a number of, of good resources out there, but Wayne Grudem's is good. John Marco has led a number of you through some, some studies of theology over the last few years. One of the things I like about Grudem's Systematic Theology, it looks a little imposing. It's pretty thick. It's a tome, but um, it's very readable, and at the end of each section, there's a song. There's a hymn. There's a a way of responding to this great truth. And a good theology ought to sing. And I would suggest to you we see that here in Philippians as well. Paul has just written this this letter to the church. And there's a lot of good material, a lot of good doctrine. I think especially about what Paul teaches about Christ. Philippians chapter 2 where Paul talks about Jesus being the second person of the Godhead, equal with God, uh, and yet being willing to lay aside his glory and humble himself to taking on of human flesh and humbling himself even to the point of death, even to death on the cross. Uh, this wonderful theology of Christ that is contained here. And, 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 and so Paul's unpacking the nature of salvation and and But as he comes to the end here, he, he erupts in song. There's a doxology here at the end that's captured in chapter 4, verse 20. And I think it's, again, appropriate when we really understand God's truth, when we understand all that we have in Christ, our theology ought to sing. And uh, praying that God does that for us even today as we consider these closing words of Paul's letter Uh, Paul breaks into a doxology, a song, and then it spills over into a benediction, a blessing, a pronouncement, a wish for God's favor to rest upon them. And so uh, I think uh, uh, a good question for us to ask at the outset, does your theology cause you to sing? Um, At one time it it did. If you know Christ... (laughs) Uh, You were moved to song, to joy, but sometimes familiar truths become too familiar. We forget all that we have, and so I'm praying that God renews our song here this morning even as we hear Paul's benediction. So Philippians, uh, a book all about joy. Paul has uh, commanded us to rejoice in the Lord three different times in the letter. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 4. Paul says, uh, commands us to rejoice, and then repeats it again for emphasis. Uh, this theme of joy is uh, is a prominent one here in the letter and and for paul, joy, true joy, enduring joy, solid joy is rooted in Christ. If you find your joy or you 're looking for your joy in your circumstances your your joy will come and go. <laughs> But if you find your joy in the the solid realities of what we have in Christ, you will have an abiding joy that no circumstance can take from you. Paul mentions Christ Jesus three times in these closing verses. And each time he speaks to what we have in Christ or of Christ So it should come as no surprise, Paul has urged us to rejoice in the Lord. It should come as no surprise that as Paul closes his letter, he reminds us what we have in Christ. So three things here that are, again, connected with... You might have to advance that for me, Chris, if you can, please. In Christ, we are supplied with God's unlimited resources. In Christ, we are supplied with God's unlimited resources. Resources. Chapter 4, verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So in Christ, we are supplied with God's unlimited resources. So many angles to this little statement. God will supply our needs. Uh, Paul doesn't just reflect on God's faithfulness in the past, but he issues a bold declaration for the future: that right? God will supply our needs. God will fully supply our needs. This is actually captured in the the, the word itself. The word "supply." Uh, Paul has already spoken of the fact that the, the, the believers in Philippi sent him a gift by means of Epaphroditus, a financial gift to help care for him while he was in prison in Rome. And he has already given uh, a statement that he is fully supplied. It's the same word. He has everything he needs. And so Paul is saying the same thing, that we will Be fully supplied by God. God will not simply contribute to our need or assist us or provide us with a small allowance or a stipend to help us along the way, but that He will fully supply our needs. God will supply our needs out of the context of a covenant relationship. Paul uses a very personal expression here uh, that's a bit unusual in Paul's writings. Verse 19, and my God, my God will supply every need of yours. He goes on in verse 20, notice how he shifts the pronouns. He says, to our God, be glory forever and ever, amen. And there in verse 20, he introduces an additional concept, to our God and father so uh, God is not providing for us out of some stoic sense of duty or obligation but God has entered into a relationship with us and it is an enduring relationship it is a, a family relationship we have been made his children through faith in Jesus Christ this too shapes the way we think about God's provision God will supply every need. One commentator said every need encompasses the breathtaking range of everything that is vital to living for Christ. It's an exhaustive statement, is it not? That God will supply every need. I think the immediate context here, Paul's talking about financial needs. The church in Philippi had given sacrificially to help meet Paul's need. And Paul is telling them that God will supply their every need. But I think in the broader range, the broader context of the letter, uh, Paul has other things in mind as well. Emotional needs, physical needs, spiritual needs. He's promised to provide them with joy, with endurance, with unity. All that they need. In their walk with Christ, God will supply our needs in proportion to his unlimited wealth. The text says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. This means that not only will God supply our needs from his supply, but according to or in proportion to his riches. He will supply our needs generously and abundantly because he is a God who has every resource at his disposal. He will not skimp. He spares no expense. Brian Mulda and I were talking about early days here in the church, probably 15 years ago at least, uh, when one of our members, a dear saint named Cecilia Parks, came to me and said she wanted to, throw a party for the church, an ice cream party, and Cecilia's son, Delton, was the president of Country Fresh Ice Cream. Let's just say that Delton provided an ice cream party according to his position as the president of Country Fresh Ice Cream. Cecilia knew he would. She wanted to throw a big bash for the church, and she knew that I loved ice cream too, but But God, God provides in proportion to his greatness and his riches. He provides for our needs, and God will supply our needs for his glory. It's an interesting segue from verse 19 into verse 20. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul's song. This is his doxology, right? Here's where his theology sings. God is not a cosmic genie who exists to grant our wishes. We are not the center of the story. When God steps in to remedy our poverty, to give us strength in our weakness, it highlights His greatness. It speaks of His glory. And so, amen is the final word there, the verbal exclamation point in the text, right? So be it, may God be honored and praised for all of His bountiful provision to us hopefully you know the name George Mueller 19th century follower of Christ Mueller founded an orphanage in Bristol England he cared for more than 10,000 orphans during his lifetime established 117 schools which offered Christian education to more than 120,000 British children Even though the needs of the orphans were great, Mueller, as a matter of conviction, never spoke of the needs to another human being. He simply took the matter to God. And God supplied again and again and again. On one well-documented occasion, the children were seated for breakfast, even though there was nothing to eat in the house as they finished praying, the baker knocked on the door. You can only make this stuff up. And the milkman's cart broke down outside the orphanage. He had to offload his supplies. What a shame! Fresh milk for the children, right? Mueller uh, later in his in his life made a transatlantic crossing uh, for a speaking engagement in the United States, uh, actually in Quebec, Canada. He was crossing on the SS Sardinian in August of 1877, and the trip had been slowed because of a dense fog. He explained to the captain that he had to be in Quebec the following afternoon. He asked the captain to take him to the chart room where he could pray for the lifting of the fog. The captain begrudgingly agreed to take him there, and Mueller launched into a fervent prayer. Uh, This unbelieving captain, after Mueller finished praying, felt that he ought to offer a prayer as well, but Mueller put his hand on his shoulder to stop him. The prayer had already been answered, he said, (laughs) and they went up on deck to find that the fog indeed had cleared, and he made his speaking engagement that August. It's great to have someone with deep pockets in your corner, and we have someone with the deepest pockets in our corner. We should not live with a scarcity mentality, but with a surplus mentality. If God has not provided you with something, it's not because He couldn't, but because He, as our loving Heavenly Father, deemed that we shouldn't have it. Nothing is too difficult
1: for God. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of God's redeeming love. Here I find my greatest treasure, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger Wandering from the fold of God He to rescue me from danger Bought me with His precious blood. Our theology ought to sing.
0: In Christ, we are supplied with God's unlimited resources, truly a fount of every blessing. In Christ, we are also made holy before God and welcomed into His family. Notice how Paul expresses this in verse 21. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. There's the designation, in Christ Jesus. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Paul identifies four specific groups of people here in these two verses and describes their unique identity, the identity of the Christian, And the strong bond of Christian fellowship. First, Paul identifies the believers in Philippi. Right, He extends greetings to every saint in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the church and he says, I'm I'm extending greetings. And, and, And usually Paul would use a plural form. I greet all the saints. But here he uses a very personal form. I want you to greet and extend my warmest regards to every saint in Philippi. But notice that in Christ, we are saints, literally holy ones, ones who have been set apart from the common and the ordinary, set apart for God. We don't feel it oftentimes, but this is the reality for those who are in Christ, who have come to Christ in faith In Christ, we have the forgiveness of sins. In Christ, we have been justified or declared righteous in the heavenly courtrooms. In Christ, we have received imputed righteousness. His holiness has been credited to our account. In Christ, the written written record of our debts has been canceled, nailed to the cross. In Christ, we are saints. Hansen in his commentary summarizes Paul's designation of believers as saints in this context does not refer to their behavior or the moral quality of their lives but to their position as people set apart from this world by God's grace. They belong to God. They are God's possession. Paul identifies the believers in philippi as saints he also identifies his ministry colleagues he says the brothers who are with me greet you so paul's talking about his little team uh, apparently there were still some people there even though paul's in prison there was a group of people that were there helping to care for him uh, we know timothy was one of this number uh at the moment as paul's writing epaphroditus is still there with him uh but presumably there were others and paul says uh, I pass along greetings not only from myself, but from my team. Notice again Paul's designation. The brothers that are with me greet you. These were spiritual siblings. Paul had already addressed God as our father in this text. And now he addresses these believers as close family The other brothers here with me also extend their warm regards. So not only have we been given a new identity and status as holy ones, but we've also been given a new community, a new family, a new place of belonging. Paul also identifies a third group here, the believers in Rome. All the saints greet you. So, Paul's saying, not just my, my little ministry cohort here, but all of the saints greet you. If we read the book of Romans, uh, there at the end, there's a beautiful section of personal greetings that Paul extends to many of the believers in Rome Phoebe and Epinetus and Mary and Andronicus and Junia, and the list goes on and on and on. Paul says, All these dear brothers and sisters also pass along their greetings. And then finally, Paul identifies the believers within Caesar's household. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Those are the Philippians. The brothers who are with me greet you. That's Paul's cohort. All the saints greet you, all the believers in Rome, especially those of Caesar's household. Here's the icing on the cake for Paul, right? You almost get the sense he just couldn't wait to kind of slip this in here. At the outset of Paul's letter, he had told them that his imprisonment has actually served for the advance of the gospel. He knew that they were undoubtedly feeling sorry for him. They were wishing that it hadn't happened this way. Paul had always wanted to get to Rome. He always wanted to preach the gospel in Rome. And now he gets there, but he's in prison. His movements are restricted. He has no platform to preach. Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. No pity parties here, Okay. My imprisonment has served for the advance of the gospel. And he says in chapter 1 that even the imperial guard, the elite troops within the Roman Empire had come to hear the name of Jesus. And apparently some of them had responded and become saints themselves. How encouraging this must have been for the believers in Philippi. Philippi was a Roman colony where devotion and worship of Caesar had a long history. One of the the key litmus tests of your allegiance was to be able to say Caesar is Lord. And an observant Christian could not say that because Jesus is Lord. (laughs) We know these Philippians were suffering. Paul says, you're suffering alongside of me. And probably a lot of their suffering was an unwillingness to bow the knee to Caesar. How encouraging it must have been to know that the gospel had penetrated Caesar's household. John Calvin commented on this. He said, It is evidence of divine mercy that the gospel had penetrated that sink pit of all crimes and iniquities, that is, Rome. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. Imperial power (laughs) was no match for gospel power. So Paul extends greetings from these saints in Caesar's household. Hopefully you know some things about C.S. Lewis. He's pictured here on the far right of this particular picture, the book cover. C.S. Lewis went to Oxford University as an atheist... He set out to disprove Christianity, but in the process became convinced that Jesus truly was who he claimed to be, the savior of the world. Lewis's faith was not simply a private matter. There was a radical change in his life that resulted in, particularly in some great uh, writing that we benefit from to this day. But there was something else that Lewis got when he became a Christian. And that was a context of deep friendships. Uh, there was a group of them, they called themselves the Inklings, who uh, met weekly for nearly 20 years, Tuesday mornings. And they were uh, not only, most of them were, there were some unbelievers that would occasionally be a part of the group, but primarily it was a group of believers, and they were writers. And so they would not only encourage each other in their faith, but they would push one another to be better writers. Now, out of this came the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis and the Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. R. Tolkien. Lewis and Tolkien were the two primary inklings uh, throughout this time period. And these friendships came to be uh, greatly valued by Lewis and Tolkien. My friends, while it is often neglected, Christian fellowship is a great gift. The church is a great gift. It's the community of the redeemed. It's the family of God. It is often dysfunctional and sometimes marred with sin. But even so, it is a little taste of heaven. It is the salt of the earth, the light of the world. In a world wracked by civil war and genocide and abortion and divorce and selfishness and moral decay. It is a glimpse of a people reconciled to God and to one another. The Jewish people had been under the boot of Rome for 400 years. What else could bring together Paul the Jew and members of Caesar's household? Only the gospel can do that, my (laughs) friends. church is our connection to believers across the world and it is our connection to believers across the centuries we are inclined to try to find our identity in sports and sexuality and music and friend groups and we have a deeper identity grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ may we remember who we are and may we remember that we are not alone
1: The church's one foundation Is Jesus Christ her Lord She is his new creation By water and the word From heaven he came and sought her To be his holy bride With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died. Mid toil and tribulation and tumult of her war, she waits the consummation of peace forevermore. Till with the vision glorious Her longing eyes are blessed And the great church victorious Shall be the church at rest Yet she on earth hath union With God the three in one and mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. O happy ones and holy, Lord, give us grace that we, like them the meek and lowly, on high may dwell with Thee. I
0: hope your theology sings. It might sing in a higher octave than mine, but I pray that it sings. In Christ, we are supplied with God's unlimited resources. In Christ, we are made holy before God and welcomed into his family. And in Christ, we have been given unmerited favor. This is grace, right? The text speaks of, in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. That's what grace is, unmerited favor, kindness that you do not deserve. Paul began his letter with a wish for grace in chapter 1, verse 2, and now he concludes it with a wish for grace. Grace is the heart of the gospel. C.S. Lewis was once at a conference on comparative religions. He came upon a group that was... uh, debating the distinguishing feature of the Christian faith. What was it that made the Christian faith unique among the other faiths of the world? And C.S. Lewis interrupted them and said, it's easy, grace. Every other system of belief is about human accomplishment. But the gospel is about God's free grace. Paul wrote about it in Titus, for the grace of God has appeared. That's a reference to Jesus, right? To all that is represented in his coming, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here it is. Here's his work, right? Here's what he accomplished. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. The gospel is not about what we must do. It's about what Christ has done on our behalf. Rescuing us out of slavery to sin. Redeeming us by His work on the cross. In Christ we have been given unmerited favor. There's an interesting expression here in this final verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And commentators have talked about what this means. Some believe it's a special reference to inner self-awareness. In other words, I pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be real to you, that it would be internalized, that it would be alive in you. And it could be that that's what Paul is speaking about, but the word spirit here is plural. He's not talking about their individual spirits, but their collective spirit. Paul wanted the church in Philippi to live in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the midst of conflicts within and persecutions from without He wanted them to be a grace-oriented community. This might be a familiar picture to you from the 1998 version of Les Miserables, Victor Hugo's famous uh, novel. Uh, On the right is Jean Valjean. I know he looks a lot like Liam Neeson, but it's Jean Valjean. And he was a convicted felon. He had a powerful encounter with grace. In fact, it was embodied in this elderly priest. The priest welcomed Valjean into his home, something that no self respecting person would do for a known felon. But he showed him great grace. Valjean abused the privilege, stole the priest's silver, and was apprehended by the authorities. But surprisingly, the priest did not prosecute the offense or exact justice. Instead, he gave him the rest of the silver, sent him on his way. But he sent him on his way with this charge. Jean Valjean, forget not, never forget that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. Jean Valjean, my brother, you belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you. I withdraw it from dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. And Jean Valjean's life would never be the same. He would never forget that encounter with grace. It would inform the trajectory of his life until his dying day. My friends, I pray that you will never forget your encounter with grace. You and I are the convicted felons who have stolen the silver. We are deserving of hard labor in a prison camp. We stand guilty before the judge of the universe. But grace has been extended to us, unmerited favor in Christ
1: Jesus. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten Throughout heaven's eternal days On the mount of crucifixion Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Flowed a vast and gracious tide Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here is love vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above are the souls that He has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man, are intertwined.
0: Pray that our theology sings as we think about the grace that has been given to us in Christ. There's a really unique uh, encounter in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 6, it has to do with Elisha, the prophet, and it was a a low point in Israel's history. Matter of fact, they were surrounded in this chapter by foreign armies, innumerable horses and chariots, a, a hopeless situation. Elisha's servant actually said to Elisha, What should we do? All is lost. And Elisha gave his classic reply, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, God, open my servant's eyes. And they saw the forces of God's armies arrayed in defense of the city. They got a little glimpse behind the curtain, right? Perhaps you need to be reminded today of all that you have in Christ. I need to be reminded today of all that we have in Christ. We might feel poor, we are rich. We might be unwell physically, but we have the hope of the resurrection. We might feel powerless, but we are strong in Christ. May God open our eyes again to see those who are with us are more than those who are with them.